Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is a look at strategic beta, past, present, and future, and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today are Yasmin Daiha Bilger, head of America's beta specialists, and Alistair Lowe, portfolio manager for our quantitative beta strategies team. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here, David. Today, we're here with some of our colleagues from the beta business. And before we get going, I think it's just important to think a little bit about where we are in the cycle and kind of the way that beta can fit into portfolios. And we'll talk about this in more detail over the course of our conversation today. But whether you think there's a recession coming this year or next year or not for five years, maybe we're the next Australia and we're going to have these 20 plus year cycles. You know, as business cycles mature, as economic expansions mature, investors need to become more nuanced in their asset allocation. And one of the things that we've noticed is obviously active manager underperformance has been front and center, and that's led fees to really be in focus for institutional investors in particular. And people understand that they need more than beta in portfolios, pure beta in portfolios, but they don't necessarily understand what to do about it. And so I think that part of what I hope to tease out during our conversation here today is not only talking about what is factor investing and why it's of interest, but talking a little bit about some use cases, how clients are implementing these smart beta strategies in their portfolios, addressing some of the risks, some of the questions we get on the road in terms of, well, if everybody's doing this, you know, trees don't grow to the sky and maybe there will be a problem down the road. I think we've got some interesting insights to share on that before wrapping up on a more positive note and thinking about some of the opportunities in the space, which exist over the next three to five years. With that said, why don't we get things underway? Allie, maybe I'll start with you. Let's set the stage. Let's talk a little bit about what factor investing is in its most basic form and then why it's of particular interest in the current environment. I think the first thing to think about is most people have been thinking about factor exposure for quite some time using traditional factors. Equity beta is probably the first factor people started thinking about. You could have long-term government bond as another beta. What the sort of factors that we're talking about in multi-factor are other things that cause groups of stocks or bonds to move together. Value is probably the one longest discovered. There are times when value stocks work well or badly together, so they group things, quality momentum. We think, when you think about factors, is there are exposures that we believe are compensated. You get a long-term risk-adjusted return for taking this exposure. We all believe in the equity risk premium and the term premium. We also believe, based upon academic evidence and empirical evidence, that there is a long-term risk-adjusted excess return to value similarly to quality, similarly to momentum stocks. Those are sort of the three classic factors that many people talk about. And so it is a way of building a portfolio where you get an exposure to this additional risk factor, which is uncorrelated with the equity market beta. So it gets you long-term risk adjusted return, not necessarily correlated with equity markets. And by doing that, you can improve your long-term risk adjusted returns. So it sounds like as investors have found themselves in this low interest rate and what looks like could be a low return environment on the equity side going forward, factors are really a way of saying, 
I have a view here and it's a view that I'll be compensated for. And then hopefully by taking this view and implementing it in my portfolios, I'll have a smoother ride with a better return at the end of the day compared to somebody who's just invested in the markets broadly. It may be worth adding to this around factor investing. And I think Ali hit the nail on the head there. It's been around for quite some time. So I think Investors are hearing a lot more about it now, but if you zoom out and look at the landscape, what you'll see is there's over a trillion dollars in explicit factor exposure. So that doesn't even take into consideration that many managers have actually been delivering these factor exposures, as Ali mentioned, without really calling it that. When you look, though, at the market, what you'll see is there's various types of factor portfolios in there. So there's long-short factor portfolios. That's about a quarter of the market. And then there's long-only factor portfolios. That's about three-quarters of the market. The long-short story is really very much one of a source of diversification in your portfolio, and that's the way in which many clients have been using it. The long-only side, I think, has a larger variety of client use cases, and and it would be helpful to spend more time on them. But predominantly, it's people who are doing exactly what you said, David, which is looking for that intersection between passive investing and active investing. The benefits of passive being transparency, low fees, a systematic approach, but delivering a differentiated risk and return profile. And so I think that that actually kind of opens up the conversation to another one of the questions that I know we wanted to dive into, which is, you know, how are you seeing clients use factors in the current environment? Obviously, as Ali said, value has been around for a very long time. And I think we'll get to whether the clouds are beginning to break over value later on in our time today. But could you talk a little bit about how you're seeing clients implement these strategies? If you notice any sort of typical chain of events in terms of which type of factors they're comfortable implementing today versus factors that they're comfortable implementing tomorrow. And then furthermore, right, we're talking about a pie and there's a finite amount of dollars. So maybe a little bit about where the funding is coming from Mm -hmm. for those factor exposures assuming that they're a new part of the portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first place to start is that we're seeing adoption and use of factor investing across a broad range of clients, public plans, corporate plans, healthcare institutions. There's a variety of clients who have already moved into this space or are actively looking at the space. There are a number of emerging trends and themes when we look at the types of clients we've engaged with and how they're using it. One, for example, would be on the type of investor, and we know there's a lot of them, who over the course of the last 10 to 15 years have heavily moved towards market cap passive because of the intense focus on fees. Now, to where you were starting about what the macro considerations are right now, many of them are beginning to consider with future return expectations, high return thresholds, how am I going to meet those returns? So you're seeing a set of clients move out of market cap passive towards a factor-based strategy, the goal there being adding return to their portfolio, risk-adjusted return story, and the funding source being market cap passive. I think a really interesting space where people are doing that is something like U.S. large cap, because a lot of the money has moved into market cap passive there. Now, that's not the only place where people are using factor-based investing. There's also a use case of folks coming from active. And this is really the story around either not being able to find a manager with capacity that they like, or as they evaluate net of fee returns, not feeling they have many options. And so you're seeing a significant move towards factor-based investing as a way to still be delivering a differentiated risk and return profile, not moving straight to market cap passive, but keeping fees low in the portfolio. A particular area where we've seen that is definitely in international. 
international and emerging markets where I think people do put a premium on the ability to deliver out performance. So I would say pretty evenly we've seen funding from market cap passive as well as active parts of the portfolio. So it's almost like, why don't you just meet me in the middle, right? The the middle of active and passive, the intersection of these two types of investment strategies. And I think that that begs another question. And Ali, I'd like to bring you into the dialogue to get some of your thoughts on this. But you know, right, I'm an economist, I'm an investment strategist, and people always want to know, you know, growth versus value, small versus large, cyclical versus defensive. They forget that trading is really exciting, but the probabilities aren't on your side. Investing's kind of boring, right? And it's not going to be as tactical as perhaps they would like it to be. So with respect to the factor universe broadly, you know, how do you think about building factor strategies in aggregate? And can you time which factors to use based on where we are in the cycle, what you're seeing across the capital markets broadly? Can you talk a little bit about the actual implementation of these types of strategies? Yeah. The first thing is you want to make sure that you've got factors that you believe will continue to give risk-adjusted excess returns going forward and avoid things that are perhaps being data mined and overfitted. And I could talk at length later on about some of the things we do there. Secondly, you want to think about, in building them, you want diversification. Do I have factors which are naturally uncorrelated with each other? So value, typically, both logically and statistically, seems to be uncorrelated with momentum. Often when momentum's working, things are getting more and more expensive, therefore value isn't working. Similarly, when value's working, momentum isn't working. So you think logically they shouldn't be, they also aren't. We believe value, quality, and momentum are the three big factors that have stood the test of time. And by trying to diversify evenly between those three, because we think they have about the same long-term risk-adjusted return, so we evenly weight them, build portfolios, and are not really trying to time factors. Why do we not try to time factors is the question I get asked. And the answer is that if you look at the history that we have, we have maybe six cycles of big value working, value not working. It is very, very easy for any quant to take the data, torture it, and come up with something that looks really good. However, you have overfitted to a small number and you are very sensitive to the parameters. If you had built that model before the global financial crisis, you might have added or subtracted the factors too soon and got yourself into a huge drawdown beyond your pain point where you give up on the strategy. So we think by not trying to time, although we continue to do research to see whether you can, on a pure quantitative basis, it's hard. And we do know that by timing, you incur certain transaction costs. It sounds like a lot of the principles that apply to more traditional asset classes continue to apply to the factor space you want to diversify. It's about building an allocation that is right for achieving your long-term goals much more than it's about trying to you know, catch the hot dot when it's outperforming. All of that makes sense. You know, the question from where I sit, though, is if you sit and watch CNBC, if you open up the FT, if you open up The Economist, I would be surprised if I didn't see some sort of advertisement for a factor-based strategy, whether it be our own or a competitor, so on and so forth. Factors kind of seem to be all the rage. And do you worry that factor crowding will impact returns over the long run? I know you and I have chatted a little bit about one of the oldest factors that there is, and you actually mentioned it in your open remarks. But do you have any concerns that the space is getting a little bit crowded and that may, one, could it impact 
those traditional factors that we have a lot of scientific and quantitative evidence supporting the fact that they do exist. Two, could it impact some of these newer factors that have come to market and may not have perhaps as much staying power? So when people say, has it been arbitraged away, I always say, well, how long have we known about the equity risk premium? And yet somehow, despite everyone knowing about it, we continue to believe that there is a long-term return to taking it. Why? Because when it doesn't work, it hurts. So in looking at factors, we're looking at factors where there's a behavioral bias, either a risk-based bias, that it hurts from time to time, and so a lot of people avoid it, or a behavioral bias, things like momentum and quality, we think there's good behavioral finance explanations for them. So you want a prior of why it should work. Secondly, when people say, is it getting crowded? There's a lot of different ways that people express. So it's not like every manager on the planet has the exact same definition of a factor taming it on the exact same day. So you would expect that there's going to be some diversification. Thirdly, we can actually measure it. If factors would become crowded, we would notice that the correlations between the factors would go up because everyone was doing the same thing at the same time. We've looked at that, and even in the stress period in quarter one last year, when factors really had a big drawdown, you didn't see an increase in the correlation between factors. They were still behaving in the way they were 20 years ago in backtest. And arguably, if we think to some of the principles that we apply when evaluating active managers, right, you want somebody who has a consistent process. You don't want somebody who's going to change their stripes depending on the broader environment. And it sounds like the same applies when it comes to thinking about factors and smart beta more broadly. Yasmin, you spend a lot of time out on the road dealing with our clients, fielding these types of questions. I'd love to get some of your thoughts about tracking error and how to think about performance across a number of different factors. But I'd also be interested in just what you have picked up on over the past couple of months. It's been a pretty wild ride here since Christmas Eve through the end of the first quarter. You know, as of yesterday's close, S&P up nearly 20% year to date. If I was a betting man, I would say we're not going to continue to compound at this rate through the end of the year. And if I'm wrong, you guys can all hold it (laughs) against me. But how do you think about performance? And how do you think about, you know, some of the questions that clients have been coming to you with in light of a very significant turnaround in broader market performance over a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I think you've got some good odds there. I think this is single-handedly one of the most important questions in the space around performance expectations, because if I do see a hurdle that we as an industry need to overcome, it's helping our clients understand what to expect out of these types of products. I think a couple points that are just important to hit on from a high level, and the first is around tracking error. What is important to ground ourselves on in these products is that they are systematic. In fact, one of the philosophical benefits of factor investing is transparency by your manager. There's rules behind what's being done, which means you don't have manager drift. And so you can develop a fairly good expectation and understanding of how the product is supposed to work. Now, the other element around tracking error, which is important, is it's customizable to what you're looking for. And I think that's a really important point that clients are looking to get something out of these portfolios that may differ. Some clients are more focused on sharp ratio. Some clients are more focused on information ratio. How you actually construct that product around those design considerations will help alleviate the consideration and concern around tracking error. For those that are very benchmark-oriented and care a lot, you can design your strategy to have a lot more benchmark alignment. And I think that's really important because it helps to put some parameters on deviations. Now, deviations are exactly what you're hoping to achieve out of these products. The only reason to be in them is you hope they're giving you something different than a market cap benchmark. 
but at least then you have some idea of what to expect in terms of how far that can go. The other thing that I think helps with performance expectations is this conversation around single factor versus multi-factor. If anything of the last year and a half has taught us is how incredibly cyclical individual factors are. And there is a specific use case for a single factor in a portfolio that I think has a real need for clients. But by and large, a multi-factor mix is going to help overall with a smoother exposure. So for those who really can't live the high highs and the low lows relative to their benchmark, a multi-factor mix is probably a better solution around this question of performance expectations. It's why overall, when we are talking to clients, while we're giving them solutions depending on their needs, I'd say our bias tends to lead towards a multi-factor model for that one of that very reasons. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum in a number of different venues and on a number of these different podcasts. You know, diversification, having a chip on every square, particularly for long-term investors, is oftentimes the most prudent approach to take. So I want to close with one final question here, Yasmin, for both you and Ali. You know, we've talked about what factor investing is, why it's of interest, why clients are coming to us and trying to learn more about a space that has grown relatively quickly over the course of just a few years in terms of the ability to access factors that have been around for you know, 40, 50, even more years in certain cases. We've talked about some of the risk. We've talked about tracking error, performance, crowding, and the importance of having factors that maintain a certain level of correlation or maintain a certain of non-correlation amongst each other, regardless of the broader market environment. Let's wrap up on a positive note. This is a space that's garnered a lot of interest. It's probably going to continue to garner interest going forward. Where do you guys see the greatest opportunity across the factor landscape over the next three to five years? I feel like we've talked a lot about where the puck has been. Let's think a little bit about where the puck is going and how our clients may be able to take advantage of that. And Yasmin, maybe I'll start with you. Well, I just see there being tremendous tailwind for this space. And I think it's a confluence of a couple of key things. One is what you mentioned up front, which is the markets. I mean, to be honest, the last 10 years, exposure was enough. The next 10 years, it won't be for our clients. So they're having to think outside the box from how they traditionally have built portfolios. But on top of that, with the increased dialogue happening about factor investing, there's a lot more education in the market for clients to really understand what they're investing in. And there's track record. So many of these strategies have been around for decades and factors have been around for decades, but people really want to understand how a manager has been doing in the space. And in the end of the day, you have to know and trust your manager. So I think the growing amount of track record you've seen from a lot of managers will help drive that as clients are evaluating how to handle repositioning their portfolio for the next 10 years. Awesome. Allie? So I think that the last few years have been some of the toughest for multi-factor portfolios to deliver results because value is in its second worst drawdown that it's seen. And if you study history, while I've said it's hard to predict when it turns around, when value starts to work, it often comes back very sharply, very quickly, and generates significant excess returns. So in some ways, it's sort of buy on the dip right now is a good thing. The other thought I would add to what Yasmin said is quarter four was great for the space because in the U.S. was really the first time you saw down markets and could actually see in stressed markets the benefits of a diversified multi-factor approach. And I think that helps clients understand what will happen because the last 10 years have been spectacular return to the equity risk premium. 
Excellent. Well, it sounds like a more informed focus on factors is probably going to be important going forward. And I think, you know, the key takeaway from where I sit is that this isn't about active or passive. It's about active and passive and figuring out how those fit together in your portfolio to drive the optimal outcome, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So thank you both very much and looking forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 23, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature, and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, S.A.R.L., in Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, 
or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients, only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383280, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.